I'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 27 through 28, verse 25. That's page 249 in the Bibles there in your seats. It is long, and so if your legs need a rest, we certainly understand there is no law or duty to stand. We just seek to do so out of respect. It is a long passage, so let me just ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word to our understanding and to his glory. And let's heed it now. 1 Samuel 27 and 28. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And it was, when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gizites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehermelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while that he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, 
Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hands and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I shall not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread for it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray. Gracious God, we've just read a large passage from your word. And there are many words, and as in any passage, we will not do justice to a full understanding of the depth of the riches of your word. And yet, Lord, would you still, by your grace and mercy, feed us, and sustain us, teach us, and compel us by the truth of your word, and by the help of your spirit. Would you use me for that purpose? In the name of Christ, amen. So, you... If you've been at Christ Church, you perhaps were surprised. Normally, it's been our practice at uh, this season of Advent to either finish uh, a prior series or to interrupt an ongoing series to do an Advent series of passages. And that's a good and helpful practice, but it's by no means commanded or required of us. And in preparing uh, for this season and thinking about where we were in 1 Samuel I couldn't help but think that really our time in 1 Samuel has been an extended Advent series. 
For Advent is about the expectation of the arrival of the promised king. The anointed one who would deliver his people out of trouble and bondage. And so most of the book of 1 Samuel has been God's people who have been struggling under the sin first of Eli and his misleadership of the people and then the Philistine attacks and then they they want a king and they're given a king and Saul and then God rejects Saul because of his disobedience and they are awaiting the arrival of a new and better king David a king after God's own heart for Samuel is about a time of preparation for the right and true king who would lead his God his people aright now this morning it was a particularly long passage. Uh, don't normally cover two chapters. But why? Because this is really the last comparison between David and Saul we get before the end of the book and Saul's death. We've been seeking to understand what kind of king God wants versus the type of king that the people had requested. And this is kind of the last opportunity to really hold up Saul and hold up David so that we might get a clearer picture of the type of king that God desires for his people. And so that comes to a head in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28. The Philistines are gathered for war. This is not just a raid into enemy territory to steal some land or steal some crops or cattle. They are amassed for war. And uh, the place where they've amassed, it's, it's kind of the central trade route of Israel. And if they're successful, they'll basically cut the nation in two. And so this is a big deal. And yet as they're gathered there, the king says to David, I'm expecting you to fight. Now David's words are a bit ambiguous. He says, you shall know what your servant can do. And yet he's made bodyguard. And so hearing those words, you can understand God's people wondering, what is David going to do? Is David about to serve the king of the Philistines and betray Israel? As they wonder, it invites comparison between what we read of David before those words, what we read of him in the region of Philistia, and what we are about to read as the scene transitions to Saul. What do we see as we hold them up, as we are concerned about what's next for God's people? Well, first in chapter 27, let me try to summarize. It's a long passage, and sometimes keeping up can keep us from paying attention. But David is concerned that Saul has been continuing to pursue him. He says, you're blessed, go in peace, but then he comes back again. And so David says, fine, I'm going to take my men, I'm going to take their families, and we're going to go to Philistia that we would be safe. And it notes for us that Saul stops pursuing David. And he comes to Kish to serve him. And in the past, David uh, deceived him and acted crazy, but it, this is possible it's the same person, but Akish is, is one of those words like Pharaoh. It's not necessarily a name, but a title. So it's possible that this is a different king. But, but regardless, you can imagine that, that these thousands of people would have been a great burden on the capital city. And plus, David and his people would be under the constant watch of the Philistines and under their control. So David wisely says, how about as I come to serve you, king, you send me out into the country 
So you don't have to feed and water this great group of people. And that way he'll be out of the prying eyes of Achish and the leaders. And so they go and he gives them the region of Ziklag. And David takes his men and he's continuing to do these raids in the area. And they kill all the people so that there is no reporting back to Achish. But he gives a portion of the cattle and the sheep and Achish is pleased. But he tells them he's doing it against Judah while his own kinsmen are actually safe. Then Achish prepares for war after this has gone on for about more than a year. Then we come to Saul. Saul sees this great army. He doesn't know what to do. The passage tells us that God gives him no dreams. He asks God what to do and he has no visions or dreams even though he's prophesied in the past. He doesn't have the Umim and the Thumim to to consult with anymore because he's destroyed the rightful priestly line. And there is no prophet to speak to him. So he goes looking for a medium. Someone that contacts the spirits of the dead despite the fact that Saul, for most of his reign, has been enforcing the law of the Old Testament that mediums, necromancers, those who practice sorcery should not be allowed to operate, that they should be cast out, and according to Leviticus, that they should face the death penalty if they persist. And so he seeks a medium. Some men tell him where one can be found. He goes in disguise, and asks for Samuel to be called up. And Samuel is called up great to the fear and trepidation of the medium, whether it is because she didn't expect it to work or because he seems to come with such power. She describes him as a god in his power and might. We're not quite sure. But Samuel comes. He's not happy to come. And he doesn't answer Saul's questions about what he's supposed to do. He just pronounces further judgment. God's not answering you because you already made him your enemy. And in fact, you and your sons are going to join me in death tomorrow when the battle ensues. And it's at this point it would be good to recall the words of Samuel to Saul back in chapter 15. When Saul disobeyed God's command to completely destroy the Amalekites, as Samuel references here. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Notice how in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel compares disobedience to the sin of divination. It's almost as if you did this thing that is explicitly rejected by the law in in working with, with mediums, necromancers, and sorcerers. Now he has actually done it. And what does Deuteronomy 18 say about this? It says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Forever, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. 
And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. You'll note there that Deuteronomy doesn't say these things don't work ever. But because these practices lead God's people away from their true source of knowledge and trust who is God. And that's why they're to be eliminated from the land in the first place. Now it's at this point that I want to go back to David for a second. Because it's important to note that David is destroying those groups that Deuteronomy is referencing. That God gave explicit commands in Deuteronomy 20 and 25 including the Amalekites who Saul refused to destroy when God told him to. So that while Saul is disobeying the explicit command of God, and in so doing, using a medium, becoming like the very nations, David, who is among the enemy, is obeying God's command to destroy the nations who would lead his people astray. And so while the reader might ask, in chapter 28, 1-2, to what is going on? What's going to happen with David and the Philistines? He or she knows the answer to which king they should trust as they read chapter 27 and 8. Because what is the job of a king but to obey? Deuteronomy 17 describes the job of the king. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Who is the rightful king? The king who obeys God as king. We recognize the true king by his obedience to the laws of God. That's how we identify the king. But how does the king obey? And the picture we get is of constant obedience. It's one thing to say that the king, as the head of God's nation of Israel, should lead them in covenant obedience. For all of Israel is meant to obey all the time, right? They're supposed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their strength, with all their mind. It's one thing to say that and to expect that. It's another thing to see it happen or for us to do it. And so as we examine David and Saul, we see the circumstances of their obedience and disobedience shine light on the excuses and the exceptions to obedience that those we look to for leadership and ourselves often fall prey to. First of all, we see the call to obey in danger and out of danger. It's one thing to obey God when we are safe and comfortable. When everything is easy. But fear is one of those things that we often use to excuse our disobedience. And while it's concern for safety that leads David to take his family and his followers into Philistia, it does not lead him to ignore God's commands. 
Meanwhile, fear punctuates Saul's disobedience. It is his fear of the Philistine army. His heart a tremble when he sees them that leads him to say, I need to disregard the law of God so that I can get some assurance in the midst of my fear. Verse 5 says he trembled with fear. And then when he hears the answer, it doesn't do anything to remove his fear. His disobedience has only promoted more fear and more danger to him. The call to obey is when we're in danger and out of danger. Also in the context of place, both at home and in an exile. Saul is home among the people of Israel, where the law of God is the law of the land. Where That is the expectation of the Israelites. That doesn't mean they're consistent in it. That doesn't mean they always champion the law. But it is the shared understanding that they are Israel, God's people, and that God's law will dominate. And so it's not a surprise that while it is convenient for Saul that he enforces the law, he is getting rid of the necromancers and the mediums and the diviners. And yet, even when a challenge comes at home, where the expectation is the fulfillment of the law, he's willing to disobey. But David is in exile. He's among Philistines who do not fear the Lord or keep his commands. Who just a generation earlier had taken the very Ark of the Covenant into their captivity as an act of derision against the power of God. David is there among them and he will earn his keep. But he will not attack his own people and he will not disobey God. It brings up the question for us as we think about what it means for the king to obey, about whether we have different standards depending on who we are with. Am I one Ian among fellow Christians and another Ian when I am alongside other people who don't believe in the Lord? Are we one person at home where we know that God's word matters, but a different person at school or at work where they don't expect us to believe and obey the Lord? Similarly, we're called to obey not only when people are watching, but when they're not watching. When it suited Saul, when it appeared to be the right thing as the king, when it benefited him and everyone could see it, then he obeyed the law. He put the mediums and the diviners out. But when he could hide, under darkness, when he could disguise himself, putting off the royal robes that would have identified him and putting on other clothes, when few could see him, he excused his sin, and not only his sin, but the sin of the woman who would otherwise have faced the death penalty. Not only does he sin, but he invites judgment upon her by inviting her to sin, and inviting the men whom he consulted to join him in that sin. We see in Saul the king the same thing that Jesus saw and spoke out against among the religious leaders of his day, whom Jesus called whitewashed tombs, saying, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. While on the outside it might appear that David is disobeying, he's with the Philistines. He's serving those foreign bad men. 
that Jesus, he must be a bad guy being with sinners. He must be a servant of Beelzebub, casting out demons. He is actually obeying God. Fulfilling the commands, not just of the moment, but the historic commands that God gave his people. When the eyes of Israel are not upon him. When the expectation of obedience to God is not with him. We are reminded that obedience is meant for the eyes of God. Who sees whether we are in far and distant lands or are disguised in the dark. Obedience is meant for when we're in power and out of power. David is out of Israel. He's away from friends and family. He's away from his father's protection and the fellow tribesmen of Judah. Saul is king. While David has 600 men, Saul has thousands of men. David could have said, I'm supposed to be king. If I fight with the Philistines, if I live according to their standards, I can use the Philistines, I can use their ways, and I can gain more power. But David does not use the gaining of power as an excuse to reject God. Or set aside God's law until it's more convenient. When he has power. While Saul wields his power as king, he wields his power over his men saying, you should find someone that will enable my sin. And then he uses his power to say, I'm going to give you an exception to God's command as to what should happen. I will spare you, woman, even as I'm telling you to high-handedly, outright defy the rule of God. Is our power for obedience or is our obedience for power? For if one is to serve the other, then we will reject it if it gets in the way or we find another means. That is to say, if power is our goal, if obedience is just to make God happy or so that God gives us the blessing that we want or to get us the influence that we desire, then if there is a way to get power or influence or fame another way, then we will set aside that obedience as soon as there is an easy or more palatable way. But this is not even really a biblical dynamic to set it up as an either-or between power and obedience. Because the picture of power in Scripture is obedience. To see that there is no safer, stronger, better place than to be in the revealed will of God. For the truest power we have is not military or political, it's not financial, it's not the amount of influence we have, but our loving obedience to the Lord, our walking in the ways of the God who made us for himself. The king is not the one in power who obeys, but the one whose power is obedience. Who constantly obeys in danger and out of danger, at home and in exile, when it benefits him and when it doesn't, when he's seen and unseen. Obedience not only identifies the king, but defines the king. We said before in this series in 1 Samuel, as goes the king, so goes the people. The last thing that we see as we consider these kingships is that while disobedience leads the people into covenant curses, Obedience leads the people into covenant blessings. 
starting again with Saul. Samuel tells Saul that the Philistines are going to win the battle. That the army of Israel will be handed over to them in a Philistine victory. That he and his sons are going to be cut off and join Samuel in death. But let's zoom out to look at this a little bit more clearly, to get some further insight. I think sometimes when we're not clear on the significance of something when we're reading Scripture, it's always helpful to zoom out. So when in doubt, zoom out. Get a bit larger picture. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, sets the scene for us. We've just found out about Hannah and Elkanah, their desire to have a child and God's promise to give them a child. But then it zooms out a little bit to tell us about that day and age. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. What's happening with Saul? Saul, who on different occasions prophesied himself, he has no visions from the Lord. He can't consult the Umim and the Thummim. And there is no prophet because Samuel has died to tell him the Lord's will. The other thing we see is that because of the great disobedience of Saul, the Philistines are going to win a victory, a major victory. That might remind you of what else happens in the opening of 1 Samuel. That Samuel hears, excuse me, that Eli hears the horrible news that the Philistines have come and destroyed the Israelite army. That his sons have died in battle and it causes what to happen to Eli? He dies. The ark is carried off and there's a great Philistine victory. No word from the Lord. Victorious Philistines. In the great reign of Saul of almost 40 years, the king that the people wanted, a king like the nations that they requested of God through Samuel, what progress have they made? They're back at exactly where they started with a quiet God and a victorious group of enemies. Saul ruling like the nations. Saul ruling in fear. Saul letting his disobedience come about when he feels threatened or insecure. Him thinking God would be more satisfied with bulls to sacrifice than to obey Him and put them to death as He commanded has led God's people not to more safety, not more security, not more enjoyment of God, but further away. His disobedience has led to the very consequences that God would said would happen if His people disobeyed Him. But David, I mentioned that earlier that David was defeating those groups that God said Israel was to destroy. But I didn't say where this was happening. While in David's day it was Philistine territory, and the passage describes the king giving David Ziklag and says this city continued as a, as a kingly inheritance to this day, that the land in which Ziklag was, and the surrounding land in which David was defeating these enemies, was conquering them and fulfilling God's law, was land that God originally promised to the tribes of Judah and Simeon. 
land that their forefathers had not obeyed in bringing under submission to the Lord who had not defeated. They had given up. And so as David is obeying, even in the midst of exile, even under fear for his life, even surrounded by enemies, his obedience is leading his people into the fulfillment of God's promised covenant blessings to them. The king is to obey God because God is king. And it's right to obey him at all times. And as king, that obedience results in the welfare and blessing of the people according to God's covenant promises. David's obedience as the representative of the promised king brings about the enjoyment of God's promises to his people. Yet we know, however superior David's obedience is to Saul, it was not complete. He carries two wives and their families into Philistia. We know if we read further in the life of David, the heinous sin that is to come in murder and adultery. We know that the enjoyment of the covenant blessings was incomplete and impermanent. And so this is where we come to the Advent implications. God's people were waiting for a Messiah, an anointed figure to deliver them. And many arose... Many men said, I am the Messiah. Many men said, I will lead you into victory over our enemies. I will lead you into comfort and safety and security. Many false teachers presented themselves. But Jesus came accepting baptism, saying it was necessary for full obedience. Jesus came denying himself kingdoms and rules and a great name at the behest of Satan, so that he could fulfill his work. Jesus was the one of whom the Spirit, on behalf of the Father, said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the one that taught the law of God with authority, not just saying, This is what you are supposed to do, because Moses said, But you have heard, and I say to you, Don't just not murder, but do not hate. Don't just not commit adultery. Do not allow yourself to lust. And unlike the religious leaders, or Herod, who was the professed king of the Jews, who claimed Jewishness when it suited him, Jesus' obedience was complete and constant. Even among his rebels and enemies, leaving the throne of heaven to minister among a sinful people who had rebelled against the rightful king, God himself. Who obeyed even when obedience meant going to the cross, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And through his obedience, on our behalf, when we couldn't, when we failed, where we have been inconstant, he ushers in for us a full enjoyment into the covenant promises of rest of safety and life with God. Saul was the first king who led his people back into destruction. David sets a course through his obedience and faith in God to blessing for the people. Just as Adam 
the first king, the one given dominion over all the animals, over all the earth in God's name, failed and ushered in for us destruction and sin and death. So Jesus, the second Adam, the last king, ushers through his obedience eternal life and safety and security. Advent is a season of hope in the midst of darkness. It's a looking forward to the arrival of the king who will deliver his people. And in the midst of the present darkness of sin, of warfare, of sickness, among the meteorological darkness that we see around us, we light candles, we put up twinkly light displays as an admission that we are in darkness. But sometimes when we are in darkness, we will settle for less than the true light. But hear what Isaiah 9 says of the light that is promised. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great white light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The true light, the true king is not the one in power. Is not the one with the biggest army. Not with enough influence and PR to do what he wants when the eyes of the world are not upon him. The true king, the true light is the one who establishes justice and righteousness. Because he is just and righteous. And in his reign, we trust. Instead of the false lights, the kings like the nations, instead of the power, the wealth, or the fame that they wield, our hope for blessing is in the king who comes and obeys the Lord so that in him we would be blessed. Let's pray. Jesus, we come and rejoice that as great as David was for Israel, you are greater for those who trust in you as king, for your obedience is complete. Your salvation is eternal. The life we find in you is everlasting. Jesus, we know that you are coming again one day to establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Until that day, Lord, would we seek to live as our king, enjoying the blessings not because of our goodness, but because of yours. In the name of Christ, amen.